mit Kevolas, du gehst am letzten Weg. Wenn Himmeln bleiene, verstellen bleie Tag. Weil kommen wird noch unser Reusgewähnte Schau. Es wird abheugt von unser Trott, wir seien in Hello and welcome to the May 9th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Romy Kratsky, and beside me is my colleague, Anthony Barwick. Hello, everyone. It has been a wonderful spring in Kiev, as the alarms, unfortunately, have been a bit more frequent as of late. On this week's episode, we're going to be looking at the progress of the war as we run up to the May 9th deadline that the Russians have set themselves. That's actually today when Russia is considered victory over Nazism Day. And uh, there's been a lot of rumors that uh, Russian dictator Vladimir Putin may do something drastic today such as declare war on Ukraine officially, turning this from a quote-unquote special military operation to a full-fledged legal war by the Russian standards. And we'll go into what that can mean a little bit later on. But we'll also cover a couple of scandals that have uh, prompted up in the meantime, especially one involving the Russian foreign ministry and Israel. And you're probably not going to be surprised by what happens. Super anti-Semitic is what happened, actually. But yeah, that will be our second segment. So I said it wasn't a surprise. But before we get into the meat of uh, today's episode, we at Ukraine Without Hype just want to update our dear listeners on uh, some changes that we've made to the Patreon. Uh, if you're not aware, we do have a Patreon. You can sign up, donate however little or much that you want, and everything goes to keeping this podcast running and keeping us financially stable in these uncertain times. The updates concern a couple of changes that we've made to the Patreon tier. So if, so if you are an existing patron, you should listen close because these updates will directly concern you. You've probably already seen the update on the Patreon itself, but we'll repeat it here. So we've introduced a, a number of new tiers. We've expanded our tiers and kind of shuffled things around a bit. We still have our 2 and $5 tiers, and we've introduced a $20 and $50 tier. And if those don't fit you, I believe Patreon does still allow you to donate however much you would like. Uh, so you're not limited to those tiers if you want a number in between 2 and 5 or 5 and 20 or uh, what have you. Yes, the most important thing there, though, is that we can't move you into the new tiers yourself. So some people have been uh, much more generous than we ever asked for. So we create these tiers for them, essentially, to give them something more for their money. But they, if you are listening and if you are a part of, if you did give more than that $5 tier, you have to move into the new tiers yourself. We cannot do that for you. That's not how Patreon works. So if you want the new benefits, you have to move yourself is all. And speaking of those benefits, uh, we are trying to expand our operations here um, to give the, the podcast a little bit more of a kick uh, to make it a little bit more like lively. So the biggest change that we're going to be implementing um, in the coming weeks is we are going to try very hard to move to a weekly broadcasting schedule. So at the moment, we release the podcast roughly every 14 days. We want to have that that give you guys a kind of a week weekly update on the latest situation here in Ukraine on the ground. On top of that, we've introduced a whole bunch of new benefits, as Anthony mentioned, um, for these new tiers. Uh, depending on the tier you're going to be in, you may have access to a monthly Zoom Q&A at the $20 level. Um, we are in the process of setting up a Discord server, if you're not aware of what Discord is. This is a uh, messaging app that you can set up uh, separate rooms and servers on, and we are in the process of setting one of those up that everyone will be um, qualified to join. If Even if you give just $2, you still be able to join Discord. Uh, and on top of that, we will be launching a newsletter that's going to come out with every episode, just containing some links to some suggested reading that we have uh, for the episode or things that have just caught our eye over the past week as uh, as it goes on, and a few uh, words and thoughts from Anthony and myself. And of course, for our incredibly generous patrons who donate a entire 50 bucks a month, first off, why you don't have to do this, 
thank you very much. But again, you really don't have to do this. But for those people who do have um, incredibly large hearts, we'll be providing some behind the scenes content and you'll have input on the topics that we cover in our uh, in our episodes. So if there is some burning question or some topic that you would like to see some more in-depth um, reporting and analysis on, then you will be totally able to send that to us and we will develop that as part of our episodes. Um, so again, thank you uh, very much to all of our existing Patreons. Please make sure that you, um, if you donate at uh, currently more than $5, double check that you're in the correct tier uh, and stay tuned. We're going to be rolling out a whole bunch of uh, new stuff that we're really excited for. And we deeply appreciate all of you being here on this ride with us. Yeah, there, we just figured that there was a lot of demand. We people were being much more generous than we ever asked for. So we need to give back on that. Exactly. All right. So with that out of the way, let's get to the news. Here are our combat updates from the various theaters of the war. Now, one of the biggest things I'm paying attention to right now is the Kharkiv front. The Ukrainian forces have been breaking away from the city of Kharkiv and taking more and more of the countryside. I mentioned this a bit last episode, but they have proceeded much further from even there. They have advanced almost to the Russian border in places. They have taken over um, a lot of territory up to the Donetsk River. And if they're able to take beyond the Donetsk River, that will, we kind of went over it last time, threaten Russian supply lines into the battle for Donbass. But they are much, much closer than they were in our last update. Now, this push has been uh, quite rapid, especially in these last few days. But again, Russia continues to bombard Kharkiv City itself. Now, one target in Kharkiv that has received a lot of attention has been the museum to Krikovoroda, a very important Ukrainian philosopher, uh, something of an Enlightenment philosopher within the, in, within the Ukrainian context. It's within a very historical building, contains quite a number of uh, important artifacts, and we'll not be talking about it so much this episode, but in the future, I would like to speak upon the broader trend of cultural destruction that Russia is doing. And this is just one example of that. Other examples include the removal of Ukrainian place names, the removal of Ukrainian as an instruction language in occupied territories, the general idea that Russia wants to eliminate the word Ukraine in total, a lot of banned books, uh, a Taras Shevchenko statue was shot in the head. Generally, this is all a part of a wider trend to destroy the concept of Ukrainianness, which is an explicit goal that the Russian Federation has in this war. Yeah, and this all re will require a significantly deeper dive than we're doing right now, but just to mention that this museum uh, was essentially destroyed. Um, looking elsewhere in the Battle for Donbass, uh, they are... The Russians continue to make very, very slow, very, very grinding advances out of Izium and around Severodonetsk. They are taking an extreme number of casualties trying to do this, and quite frankly, they have not taken a significant amount of territory. One notable exception to this is the town of Papasna, which has been a rather important frontline town. The Russians have been trying to take it ever since the shift to Donbass that they've attempted um, many weeks ago at this point. Uh, there's, there had been heavy fighting within the city, and the Ukrainian forces finally decided to uh, cut their losses and stage a uh, withdrawal from the city itself to defensible positions deeper within Ukrainian territory. And just as an aside, um, that shouldn't sound like the Ukrainians are really giving up ground. This kind of tactic of bleeding the Russians dry and then falling back at the last moment to 
allow basically an exhausted Russian force to then take some territory before launching counteroffensive. This is uh, exactly the sort of uh, strategy that was used uh, during the uh, Battle of Kiev. Um, this was the strategy Ukrainian forces used pretty much all throughout the Northern Front uh, in the starting stages of the war. Uh, because Russian supply lines are overextended in the best of times, allowing the Russians to take some territory only to then come in with a refreshed force and reinforcements and crush them uh, has proven to be an effective tactic. So just because the Ukrainians are falling back from Popovsna now doesn't mean that this is a bit of Ukraine that we have given up. This is purely a tactical maneuver to later, um, as I said, come in and take that ground back from a demoralized and uh, likely undersupplied uh, occupation force. Yeah, and from what I understand is that, like I said, it was a very uh, deliberate and strategic withdrawal. It wasn't you know, a, a route or anything like that. It was, there was purpose behind it. So don't be too discouraged by this is what I'm saying. Um, and to finish up the update from the Donbass sector, because again, there hasn't been so much movement to update you all on, is with Azovstal, a metallurgical plant in Mariupol. Uh, once again, these people, the, the defenders of Azovstal, this massive metallurgy within Mariupol has been the last stand of Ukrainian forces within the city of Mariupol. Their supplies have been withering but they have been able to successfully hold on up until now. If I were to guess, they'll try to do something for Victory Day. I, we, there's, we'll, we'll have updates on that. Hope, ho well, hopefully no updates. Hopefully things will stay static for a few for a while. But the other point here is that many of the civilians within Azovstal that are still alive, which was not many, unfortunately. There has been uh, extreme loss of life were able to be evacuated from Mariupol to the eastern city of Zaporizhia, which is one of the Ukrainian staging grounds along the Dnipro River, just south of the city of Dnipro. Zaporizhia has taken in many of the refugees from Donbass, and the Azovstal evacuees seem to have gotten there um, mostly in one piece. One thing I would like to clarify about Azovstal, it is one of the largest steelworks in the country and was incredibly economically important um, to Ukrainian heavy industry. But on top of that, uh, specifically in the war, the fact that the uh, Ukrainian defenders have managed to hold this kind of pocket of Mariupol for nigh on three weeks now uh, meant that Russia has had to commit an incredibly disproportionate amount of forces to Mariupol itself. Uh, therefore tying those forces up from joining um, the battle for Donbass in full uh, and the joint forces operation, which is what was the old contact line uh, before the full-scale invasion. So the defenders are still holding out. However, the Russians began to storm the facility about four days ago, as Anthony said, this is likely due to wanting to declare a win for Victory Day, um, and combat has pretty much been heavily ongoing um, this entire time and is still heavily ongoing. I, the defenders held a press conference um, just on May 8th where they kind of pleaded with the international community to figure some way to get them out. No one wants to die in Cold War-era nuclear bunkers under a steel factory. Um, the Russians seem not to care. And obviously, given the labyrinthine nature of the Cold War bunkers and tunnels under Azovstal, I mean, they were originally built to survive a nuclear explosion, um, it's going to be a lot more blood spilled on both sides before anyone can claim any kind of victory or defeat. Yeah, I saw one soldier who was of Crimean Tatar ancestry appealing to Turkey to come and evacuate them. They would rather not do a last stand. They'd rather live and fight elsewhere, but it seems like that will be their only option. Well, as the only thing we can say from our spots here elsewhere in Ukraine is Godspeed and... Well, Grom Slava, I guess. Um, hopefully they'll... Hopefully that there's still some hope there. We'll, we'll see. 
But moving on to what I'm calling the Southern Front, mostly based around Kherson, once again, Ukrainian forces have not been able to make as much movement as they have in the past towards the city of Kherson. Storming a city requires a considerable amount of offensive effort, which is not quite in the cards at the moment. Um, but the pressure is very much on Kherson in order to uh, keep the keep Russian forces there as opposed to redeploying out east. If they do too much of a counteroffensive, if the Russians try too much of a counteroffensive out of Kherson, it will not only fail, it will also distract resources from where it's more desperately needed. And looking out south into the Black Sea, uh, there was a report of another Russian frigate, the Makarov, being destroyed, but this seems not to have been true. Um, all there's no evidence that this actually happened, although there was a considerable amount of chatter about it within this past week. However, Ukraine has been able to hit Snake Island quite a lot. Uh, you may remember the name of Snake Island from it being one of the first engagements of the war. The Ukrainian servicemen on the island who family family said, uh, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. That's that island has been turned into a Russian base, which now Ukraine has been hitting very, very hard, including with direct airstrikes. A number of Russian, um, small Russian vessels have been destroyed. I think uh, two Raptor class patrol boats and a landing craft have all been destroyed. Another Raptor class boat was damaged. So uh, the Ukrainians have managed to um, thin out at least a tiny bit of um, Russian naval power, maybe not quite on the scale of Moskva, but every little bit helps. Yeah, so if everyone was too excited about the Makarov being sunk, it's there's some of a consolation prize there, even if that didn't actually happen. Nothing much else. Um, looking elsewhere in the, in the country, there has been a lot more rocket strikes especially in the Odessa and Mykolaiv directions. A lot of residential buildings in these cities have been hit. Um, just speaking anecdotally, in Kiev, the alarms at night have been going a lot longer than usual, which has unsettled me a little bit, uh, waiting for this coming week, which I think will be a hot one. But overall, the city itself of Kiev has largely opened up considerably. Most of the checkpoints and block posts have been taken down within the interior of the city itself. A lot of where they once were, look on the side of the road, there'll be still be a lot of sandbags and caltrips and all that, but not on the street. Like they're there to in case they need to make a new checkpoint in the future, but they're not there anymore. This changed. I got on my bike to go to the more outskirts of the city, and the checkpoints are still on the entrances and such but not in the interior, which it gives a much more of a feeling of normalcy. Uh, normalcy is returning more and more, which is nice. And the people, especially for the people who have fled from elsewhere in the country further east, coming to Kiev, it, it feels much more of a safe zone than it might have in the past when it was more militarized. And quite a few European leaders have actually been visiting Kiev um, on May 8th. Kiev played host to the Prime Minister of Croatia, as well as the President of the German Parliament, and a number of embassies have also been reopening. So Kiev is unlikely to be under direct threat, aside from, of course, missile strikes, um, for the foreseeable future. That may change, but not in the next few weeks. It would take um, a considerable effort by the Russians to attempt any kind of actual um, attack on Kiev maybe even for three to four months. Um, but if, if the war, of course, lasts that long, which we're all hoping it won't, but it's about as safe as, as it can be at the moment. And on the diplomatic front, you, you mentioned some embassies reopening. The American embassy has seen some uh, staff moving back into it. I have not heard anything about it actually opening up again, but it looks like they're doing the preparations for it. And speaking of the Americans, Ukraine finally, after how many years? Four years? Who even knows at this? It, a long time. Ukraine finally has a U.S. ambassador. Bridget Brink has been nominated as the U.S. ambassador 
to Ukraine. She is the former ambassador to Slovakia and has spent a lot of time in the region. So the United States has finally decided after all of this time um, that Ukraine is diplomatically important enough to warrant an ambassador. Um, so that's always a, a positive sign. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. has moved forward with the Lend-Lease, uh, sending additional armaments to Ukraine. We've talked about this before, but again, they are more and more weapons, tanks, artillery, that kind of thing have been moving to fulfill, to fill the depleted resources of the Ukrainian army. These will allow the Ukrainian army to go on further offensive, such as around Kharkiv, and hopefully into Donbass more itself. And a number of um, weapons have already made it from U.S. shores to Ukraine uh, under the Lend-Lease terms. And I'm referring here to a number of artillery systems as well as uh, suicide drones. Basically, loitering drones that stick in the air, wait for a nice, delicious heat signature, and then dart down and explode. And they're small. You can't really see them very well. They are very devastating. Yeah, they're the future of warfare, really. They really are. But we've been getting those, and it's hard to overstate how much of a game-changer Lend-Lease really is. If people remember their history, the last time there was a Lend-Lease program was during World War II, and it was credited as one of the defining policies that won the war in favor of the Allies, pretty definitively. It has all the chances of doing the same in this war as well, and the effect may not be immediate. It takes time, of course, to wheel and transport thousands of tons of heavy weaponry across an ocean and a continent. But once that supply chain is going at full tilt, it will represent a rather pivotal turning point uh, in this war so far. And one more point before we move on from our updates to our second segment is Transnistria. We've talked about Transnistria uh, a bit in other episodes. It is a piece of Moldova, a very small piece of Moldova that is occupied by the Russian army following a war in the early 90s. But Russia has been trying to get Transnistria to join in on their side of the war. There have been a number of perhaps false flag attacks, perhaps who knows who is responsible for these explosions, destroying, for example, a TV tower, trying to rope Transnistria in to attack Odessa from the north and west. An overall very stupid idea, considering that there are very, very few soldiers stationed in Transnistria. They're extremely poorly equipped. Most of their stuff has been sold off on the black market. They're overall not an effective fighting force, and they'd be trying to fight without any kind of supply lines whatsoever, surrounded by Ukraine and Moldova. Terrible, terrible idea. And it seems like Russia actually abandoned this after a number of days of really pushing Transnistria to join the war. It kind of petered out a little. We still can't rule out the involvement of both the um, armed groups in Transnistria and the Russian troops stationed there. Uh, they have all been brought to full readiness on paper. That is 10,000 men. As Anthony said, though, what is on paper and what works in reality are um, entirely different and unconnected things. Especially Transnistria. Especially in Transnistria. Um, and again, yes, they don't have any supplies. They have nothing. Um, but it does seem to be uh, a plank of the overall Russian strategy at the moment to create this kind of bridge from Crimea to Transnistria. Uh, it doesn't seem like a realistic plan, um, but it does seem like something the Russians would like to do, especially given the uh, increase in attacks on Odessa. Um, though there is no evidence uh, that Odessa is threatened by any sort of um, kinetic invasion um, anytime soon. Yeah, there was some chatter of a potential naval invasion of the uh, Basarabia region of Ukraine and to connect with Transnistria from there. But then you know, Ukraine blew up several of Rus Lush Russia's landing craft. So that doesn't seem very, very realistic either. And again, the Russian Black Sea Fleet is all, at the moment, as far as we know, um, import in Sevastopol. And um, after the sinking of the Moskva, they seem rather reluctant to uh, go back out there. Which would be very understandable. No one wants to die at sea. 
And that is all for our updates. We'll try to have some kind of quick reaction to whatever happens on Victory Day. We expect it to be something. It could be a declaration of war. This declaration of war by Russia would allow them to do more mass mobilization, which has been difficult thus far, though various uh, observers have pointed out that it, even mass mobilization wouldn't work out too much in their favor. So to um, clarify all these terms being thrown around um, for our listeners that may not be entirely familiar with the legalese of Russian war making, war mongering, uh, Russia currently has not declared war. It is conducting what uh, the Russians love to call a special military operation. What that means is certain provisions uh, in Russian law that allow the government to take more drastic measures in converting um, the Russian state into a war fighting apparatus. Uh, cannot take effect. Um, that means that people cannot be drafted. They can still be pulled from the usual uh, year-long term of service that um, all males in Russia are obligated to serve, but the Russian uh, government cannot simply draft and force people into the government. Um, also, professional soldiers can refuse assignments because technically Russia is at peace. At war, professional soldiers, contract soldiers, as Russia calls them, um, cannot refuse assignments. But at the moment, um, I saw one statistic that said something up to 40% of uh, Russian contractees or professional soldiers have actually refused to fight in Ukraine for obvious reasons. Their life expectancy does not seem to be doing too well once they come to Warsaw. Uh, but if Russia does declare war, all of these restrictions are suddenly lifted. Russia can now draft whoever it wants. Um, professional soldiers will not have the uh, privilege to revoke or to refuse assignments. Um, the Russian government will be able to take more direct control um, of the Russian economy uh, and dictate uh, outputs. So they could, for example, start forcing factories to convert from um, civilian goods to military goods. Uh, at the moment, this is still done through the tender process. Well, on paper, obviously, uh, in reality, Russia is a deeply corrupt country. Everything runs on the rule of corruption. But under um, under wartime conditions, the government can simply dictate terms. The Russian government will be able to declare martial law and basically start switching the, the economy to one um, based on, on total war. As much as, of course, the deeply corrupt and creaking under sanctions, Russian economy can do so, um, which is a completely different story. But it would, on paper, give them the ability to, to do so. Now, the reason that Russia has not declared war, um, even though their uh, initial aims in the war have completely, to Tsitsiki, have completely failed, is um, debatable. There are quite a number of theories. Since this is my podcast, I get to share my theory, uh, which is that I do not actually believe the Russians are capable of conducting a uh, mobilization. What I mean by that is they cannot train, equip, and ship and supply 100 to 200,000 um, newly drafted soldiers uh, if they decide to call them up. And doing so may prove incredibly politically costly um, for them. Most of the soldiers that Russia has had in Ukraine are either from minorities in the Russian Federation or uh, from far eastern, uh, incredibly small, poor, and isolated villages, which is why you We've seen um, very surprising reactions, such as uh, soldiers saying, oh, wow, they have, you know, paved road and villages, or their streetlights work, or look, there's indoor plumbing. Um, fun statistic I like sharing is 25% of Russian households do not have indoor plumbing. Yes, one-fourth of Russian households. Um, but because of the poverty and minority status of so many of these soldiers that Russia has been sending to die in Ukraine... Uh, the effects have not been felt so much within the imperial core of Russia, um, which is basically two cities, it's Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, people from those cities have not been feeling the, the sting of war so deeply. However, if war is declared and Russia conducts a mass mobilization, then folks from those cities will also start to be affected 
and they are very unlikely to want to serve their country. Um, in Russia, military service is not considered prestigious, nor is it seen as something an honorable citizen does as their duty to serve the state. It is seen as something that you do if you are too poor to be afford to afford to bribe the recruitment office or too stupid to figure out how to bribe the recruitment office. Um, this is a very widely held position in Russia um, by basically everyone. Uh, and in the two richest Russian cities in St. Petersburg and Moscow, uh, that goes double or even triple. Um, if Putin starts calling those guys up for military service, they are um, very unlikely to be happy about it especially given the uh, logistics and supply problems um, that we've seen the Russians evidence this entire war. So my belief is that Putin has not declared war because he knows he cannot. He will uh, lose whatever tenuous um, or semi-tenuous grip on power uh, that he has now. However, the arguments for war being declared um, are pretty simple. Russia needs more men on the front. They need more equipment on the front. Uh, and the government needs to uh, start capitalizing from the civilian economy for the war effort, given that their foreign reserves are basically frozen. Uh, a lot of debts are coming due, and no one <laughs> wants to pay for Russian fossil fuels in Russian rubles. Because of that, um, those are all very compelling reasons to declare war to simply unlock the kind of um, the legal ability to do the things that, uh, that I've mentioned earlier. But again, it is a toss up. Um, neither I nor Anthony have any idea what's going to happen uh, on May 9th, but we'll be very pleasantly surprised if nothing does. Let's put it that way. If anything happens, there will be an update. If nothing happens, then there's nothing to update on. Hopefully, there'll be nothing to update on unless Putin just declares that the war is lost and goes home. That would also be something to make an episode about, but I'm not going to hold my breath. As we love saying on Ukraine without hype, no news is good news. Unfortunately, that's not been the case. <laughs> In this next segment, we're going to be talking about something rather topical to Victory Day, which is anti-Semitism. World War II, anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, these are all very tightly interwoven. And Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov decided to take the opportunity to go absolutely wild. Lavrov went on an Italian television show talking about, you know, the denazification of Ukraine or whatever and mentioned that just because Ukraine has a Jewish president doesn't mean they can't be Nazis, because, wait for it, Jews were also responsible for the Holocaust. Hitler had Jewish blood. Now, I know what our listeners may be thinking of. Wow, that's really disgusting anti-Semitic, and you would be right. However, I think it's very important to point out that this is an incredibly common belief in the post-Soviet world, but especially in Russia. And Anthony, I think uh, you can explain to us why that is. Yeah, this was, I'm not going to try to intellectualize this nonsense, but yeah, there is a widespread conspiracy theory that Hitler's grandfather was Jewish. You may have heard this yourself, listener. Just know that it's nonsense. I don't have enough time to go into why it's nonsense right now. Just know that it's not true. Just like we would never uh, dare to debunk the flat earth theory, we're also not going to dare to debunk Holocaust denial or victim blaming the Jews for World War II. Those are just not topics that we care to, to engage with. No, it's, it's overall gross, and I don't want to do that. But he also, Lavrov also said, quote, for a long time now, we've been hearing the wise Jewish people say that the biggest anti-Semites are the Jews themselves blaming the holocaust on the jews which is horrifically offensive and there has been a variety of responses saying as such i do want to say one thing 
about why Lavrov may have thought that this is an acceptable thing to do. Um, and this touches on a topic that we've raised a couple of times on this podcast before, um, and I've raised multiple times in my uh, journalistic work, is the, the fact that for Russians, Nazism is not about anti-Semitism or fascism or anything, really. It is purely anti-Russian. That is, um, for Russians, Nazism is defined as an anti-Russian ideology, which is why they can easily call any anti-Russian sentiment in the world uh, Nazi, because that's how they define Nazism. They don't define it by um, the racial myths of the Aryan people or whatever nonsense Nazis talk about. No, they just say, if you are anti-Russian, you are definitionally a Nazi. Yeah, and a few Russian uh, TV presenters made this point explicitly, saying that the new Nazism is anti-Semitism against Russians, not even trying to make a new word for it. Anti-Semitism against Russians. Whatever. It's a bunch of craziness, is what I'm saying here, and it would take a, a forever amount of time to go over into the depths of its insanity. But anyway, the... This was responded to in a variety of ways. Many Jewish organizations around the world did not take kindly to Holocaust revisionism. But this also included uh, the Israeli government. The Israeli government has been, I hesitate to say neutral, but definitely playing its, its cards close to its chest. Regarding the Russo-Ukraine war, there has been plenty of aid, but they've also tried to maintain relations with either side. They've also um, instituted really quite strict refugee laws, uh, specifically targeting Ukrainians. It's been delicate, <laughs> to say the least. But Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, uh, quote, said, Such lies are meant to blame the Jews themselves for the most terrible crimes in history and thus free the oppressors of the Jews from their responsibility. While Foreign Minister Lapid said that Foreign Minister Lavrov's remarks are both an unforgivable and outrageous statement as well as a terrible historical error. Jews did not murder themselves in the Holocaust. The lowest level of racism against Jews is to accuse Jews themselves of anti-Semitism. This again was across the board, uh, which led to Lavrov digging his heels even further, saying that Israel is a supporter of the Nazis in Ukraine, the Russian media, like we've talked about, really dug in on this as well, building on their nonsense, just getting the full breath of anti-Semitism. And this all went on for around a week. This was not a especially long, drawn-out scandal. And it ended in perhaps um, one of the most surprising, at least to me, ways it could have. Um, despite what Foreign Minister Lapid said about this being, quote-unquote, unforgivable, Putin himself apologized to P.M. Bennett personally um, for these remarks, uh, saying, I'm paraphrasing, but mea culpa, which is, again, not ever a, like, a thought, like, a phrase that I would ever have imagined Putin was even capable of, of saying. But, he did, yeah, but he did apologize for the statements of the Russian foreign ministry. Um, and uh, P.M. Bennett seems to have accepted that apology. Yeah, but to say that this was uh, fully accepted is... Russia really showed its true colors here, essentially, and that's not going to be forgotten very quickly, even if uh, the state of Israel itself is trying to repair its, dipl its diplomatic ties in the wake of something that is typically a very severe problem for them. Anyone has a video of this, I will sell my left kidney. No no questions asked. I'll put myself in an ice bath. He's not a man for apologizing, no. I want to see video. I want to see Putin say the words, I apologize, or I'm sorry, or show any sort of human contrition ever. But anyway, so this shows a strange dichotomy that Putin has done on this point. Putin himself has not been terribly anti-Semitic personally. He has cultivated relationships with Jewish oligarchs, Jewish elites, um, the Jewish establishment within the country. Famously, 
Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, once actually brought this up with him, asking why he has so many Jews around, because it's not something he would ever tolerate. But at the same time, the Russian state does operate with endemic anti-Semitism. There is systemic Holocaust revisionism in the way that we just discussed. A Jew actually holding individual power within the country is not something I can ever imagine, unlike Ukraine and its Jewish president. It's a, it's a very complicated subject. I recommend that you look at the book Putin's Hybrid War and the Jews by Sam Sokol, which has a new edition out. It's a very large topic, very confusing, but just know that there is, uh, I'd say, anti-Semitic country ruled by a leader that has tried to balance that out. So there's a argument to make there that one of the reasons so many of Russia's oligarchs are Jewish are specifically because they cannot build a domestic power base because of Russian anti-Semitism. But you can't just look at Russian state anti-Semitism as only a factor of Putin. It is something that is interwoven into the very meaning of the Russian imperial ideology and the Russian imperial state. Official anti-Semitism has been a part of these things going back centuries. And I'm going to go through some of the key turning points in history that allowed it to develop this way, but I want you to keep in mind two very essential themes. The first of these is assimilation, the desire of Jews to be Russians. And the other is reaction. When things have gone badly, for the Russian state, they have blamed the Jews. I want to begin this story with Napoleon. That really is the creation of the modern world. You may be very familiar with the Napoleonic invasion of Russia in 1812 and its disastrous ends. But this invasion wasn't just a physical threat to Russia. It wasn't just about them conquering Russian cities, about them destroying Russian armies, It was an ideological struggle. Napoleon brought with him the ideas of liberalism, brought with him the ideas of the French Revolution, of liberty, equality, and fraternity. How much Napoleon himself stuck to those ideas, different conversation. But Napoleon had many supporters who did truly believe the empire was about those qualities. And these qualities ran very much in contrast to Russia, to the absolute control of the Tsar and his oppression of the lower classes. And in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, even though Napoleon himself lost, of course, these ideas took hold throughout the continent. And there were many revolutions. There were many, um, there were many independence movements that based themselves on wanting to be free from empire. And this absolutely terrified Russia and the other conservative monarchies of Europe. And it was in this historical moment that Russia began to develop its imperial ideology as something that you could, you know, actually pin down and study. And this is um, typified in the phrase orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. Each of them contained the seeds for some version of anti-Semitism. Orthodoxy, of course, referring to Orthodox Christianity. The idea that the state is based around this church and Jews are very obviously not a part of uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity or any kind of Christianity. Two, autocracy, the absolute rule of the czar, and Jews insisted on their own internal rule, which directly contradicted that. And three, nationality, the idea that the Russian people were something pure, something almost messianic in their internal spirituality an early form of populism, really. And while this may not have developed specifically to counter Jews so much as liberalism more broadly and various independence movements that were popping up, it very much laid a foundation for official anti-Semitism. And I go so far as to say an early proto-form of fascism. And as the Russian Empire was combating these independence groups, combating these liberal groups, of course, liberal, um, of course, Jews suffered for it. For one, in order to pay attention here, assimilate Jews, many of them were drafted into the Russian army, where they were kept for as long as 20 years. If you were drafted into the army, that was a life sentence. And in the army, it was meant to force Jews to accept Russianhood. Meanwhile, their independent local governments, the Kahal, was dissolved. It was destroyed. 
there would no longer be an independent Jewish self-government. So this is all happening in the early to mid part of the 19th century, primarily under Nicholas I, who really laid the foundation for all of this. And this is where we reach our big turning point, the assassination of Tsar Alexander II by a group of anarchists, socialists, revolutionaries, not very specific, Norodnaya Volia, People's Will. And this sent shockwaves through the empire. The emperor was killed, and not only that, by a group that was trying to destroy the empire itself. And the first reaction, again, pay attention to my themes, was to blame the Jews for it. Now this group was primarily non-Jewish. Most of them were ethnic Russians. But within the Russian political mind of the time, revolution was something associated with Jews. So the death of the emperor, the death of the czar, was blamed on the Jews as a whole. So in the aftermath of Alexander's death, there was a massive wave of pogroms, a massive wave of violence against the Jews by people who saw themselves as defending the empire and everything that it stood for. And note, if you're a Jewish American, this is uh, very likely the time when your family went to America. All this violence caused Jews to flee. They went to Britain, they went to the US, Australia in order to not be murdered, as many of them were. And so this uh, conspiratorial idea of Jews being the enemy of the empire and its ideology began to sink in more and more. So Alexander II is succeeded by his son, Alexander III, very conservative, very much promotes these anti-Semitic ideas. But then we get to Alexander III's son, Nicholas II, also known as the final czar of the Russian Empire before the revolution. And here is where things get very proto-fascist. So all these revolutionary ideas keep bubbling up. And again, Russia, the Russian government blames the Jews for them for these ideas, and the struggle in favor of the empire and against revolution was intimately connected to a struggle against the Jews. This especially became a problem after the revolution of 1905, after the disastrous defeat in the Russo-Japanese War, again, reaction, blame the Jews, Russo-Japanese War happens, followed by a revolution that forces a constitutional government on Russia, the Russian ruling classes, blame the Jews for this in many ways. So when the emperor is strong enough to crush the revolution, it is followed with another wave of pogroms. So in this pre-revolutionary period and post-revolutionary period, where the society is really struggling to stay true to its, its very authoritarian autocratic rule, there is a group that forms called the Black Hundreds. The Black Hundreds take the ideas of orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality to their extreme. They promote them to, the, to the, the common people. They have many, many riots to destroy Jewish property, including a few in Kiev, where they're also concerned about the growth of Ukrainian nationalism. They weren't just anti-Semitic, they're also very anti-Ukrainian. And these philosophers who are creating new state ideology for, for Russia really become really begin to pin their ideas on anti-semitism as the with the Jews as the ultimate enemy of the Russian people. One of these for example is Ivan Illin. And Ivan Illin's ideology so presages Nazism after he uh, fled Russia following the Bolshevik revolution during World War 1, he kind of took credit for Hitler. He saw the creation of Nazi ideology and thought to himself, "Yes, this is what I've been saying this whole time." And meanwhile, there is a book published called The Protocols of Learned, Learned Elders of Zion, which is basically the formula for every anti-Semitic conspiracy you've ever heard. Its origins are somewhat obscure, but it was probably written on the orders of the Russian Imperial Secret Police and definitely spread by them. This book blamed the Jews for pretty much everything. It said that there was a secret Jewish plot to control the world and destroy Christian culture and all that. And looping back to the Black Hundreds, the person who brought this book to America was himself a veteran of the Black Hundreds named Boris Brassel, who became an employee of Henry Ford. Henry Ford, American industrialist, giant anti-Semite. So now we have World War I, we have the Civil War, we have the February and October revolutions that overthrow the Tsarist government. 
And by this time, the Tsar and his court have been so enmeshed with anti-Semitic ideas that while Nicholas II was living in exile following the February Revolution, he was reading his children the protocols every night. So they know that the Jews are the cause of all of their problems. But they lost this civil war, and the Bolsheviks won the creation of the Soviet Union. And again, very large topic, but just know that being a Jew in the Soviet Union wasn't very easy either. They had an identity that could possibly be more important than Sovietism, and that had to be uh, crushed out. There was very severe forced assimilation. There was, like we've been talking about before, the erasure of the Holocaust and Holocaust revisionism. There were quotas for how many Jews could be in a university or in a job. Outward displays of Jewishness were very, very dis, uh, discouraged. It was not a good time. But then we reached the collapse of the Soviet Union, of the opening up that happened in the 80s, in the 90s, and in this time, the opening up also allowed bad ideas to come in, including the return of Ilan, the return of all these far-right anti-Semitic proto-fascist and fascist ideologies that very quickly took hold among the Russian people. One thing that you also had following the kind of fall of the Soviet Union, um, especially amongst the older generation, was a strange sort of synthesis of all of this kind of far-right um, ideology, all of these conspiracy theories um, about Jews, mixed in with very Soviet outlooks on things. Um, and you get, uh, you got a very weird situation where you'll have um, very nice old grandmothers talking about how Jews still practice blood libel. Um, and then when you talk to identically looking grandmothers, but now they're, um, Russian-speaking Jews, you'll hear almost the same thing, except it'll be a different ethnic group. A lot of very weird things happened around the fall of the Soviet Union when it comes to ideology. As we've gone over before, the fact that the Soviet Union never really identified Nazism with anti-Semitism meant that there was never that reckoning as there might have been elsewhere. If you look at Western Europe, there was a steep decline of at least public anti-Semitism because the Nazis went too far and you didn't want to sound like a Nazi. But in the Soviet Union, when that wasn't the uh, immediate assumption that people made about these kinds of beliefs, they stuck around longer. There wasn't the... It didn't become as gauche as it did elsewhere. <laughs> but yeah, so in the 90s, there as this... Um, these czar, like these fringe ideologies came back into play. Uh, Ivan Illin again became very, very popular, especially among groups like, uh, um, they're called the Eurasianists. Now, you may have heard of Alexander Dugan. He is a far-right philosopher within uh, Russia that has spread the idea of Eurasianism, spread the idea of national Bolshevism. And within Eurasianism, they basically see it, the world as some kind of Slavic super identity that was mostly threatened by the Jews. One of the kind of key examples of these very strange kind of synthetic um, conglomerations of far-right thought mixed with um, what was kind of traditional Soviet conservatism. Um, it was, for example, in the 90s and the early 2000s uh, to talk about a pan-Slavic identity and how um, the Slavs should all reunite again, except this time without the minorities, because they're the ones that messed up the Soviet Union. Um, minorities, which, by the way, include Jews. It was a, a very odd time to be Eastern European, um, especially going between the United States and Eastern Europe, because the kind of things that you would hear were so diametrically opposed uh, that induced quite a bit of, um, I want to say, distance and culture shock. Uh, hop the ideological whiplash. Ideological whiplash, exactly. Um, but the, the, and one thing I do want to know is, like, these were fringe ideologies, but at the same time, they were rather common amongst people who would 
have an ideology. Most people were apolitical, but if you mention something like Pan-Slavism or um, you blame the Jews for the fall of the Soviet Union or whatever, these were very common and accepted ideas. No one was going to like give you dirty looks in public. Um, Dugan in particular, his books are quite popular among the military and among the security state where Dugan himself as a person might not be as influential as maybe people talk about, but his ideas very much are. His books are. People, people read them. Um, the speech that Putin gave at the beginning of the war, if you're, if you're familiar with Dugan's thought, if you're familiar with Eurasianism, you picked up on it, we'll say. So it has really permeated into the Russian state apparatus, even if many Russians might never have even heard of him directly. And part of what makes all this whiplash possible is that it is a culmination of all these ideas that have made up Russian ideology. Russia was strong during the empire, so we'll take ideas from the empire. Russia was strong during the Soviet Union, we'll take ideas from the Soviet Union. It's all just Russia under different flags. And so you have to take all the ideas that Russia had throughout history and kind of jam them into one thing. It kind of makes sense when you think of it that way. And combine this with, you know, simple petty anti-Semitism that some people might have that has nothing to do with these concrete ideologies, and it creates a very disturbing and dangerous ideological milieu. But one thing I do want to mention is that modern Russian identity has gone a little away from the um, purely ethnic foundations that it had. Uh, in the Tsarist realm, a very common refrain that you can hear when, if you discuss anti-Semitism um, with a Russian, uh, is the they'll use um, the phrase that there are Jews and there are um, Y word. It's a slur used in Russian for Jews. Um, in that sufficiently Russianized Jews are not really seen as the evil Jews that you need to be anti-Semitic. Russianism is something you can uh, buy your way into. Yeah, you can assimilate, you can speak Russian, you can even have your um, Jewish holidays as long as you don't parade it about. You can, you know, have family in Israel, that's all fine, because you're not one of the bad ones. And by definition, most Russian Jews are not one of the bad ones. Jews in Ukraine are one of the bad ones. Jews in America are some of the bad ones. Or, as with everywhere um, in the world, all the far-right parties in the world love using George Soros uh, as an example, one of the bad Jews. Um, so they do make this distinction between what they consider to be an, an acceptable Jew, basically, and uh, the uh, slur that they use against unacceptable Jews, which they simply use to indicate the hidden cabal or um, a political enemy. So leading up to the, the beginning of the Donbass War in 2014, there was all these little militias that were forming in Crimea and the Donbass, most of them with some version of extreme far-right imperialist Russian ideology behind them. Now, we were talking about the Black Hundreds earlier. There was a militia in the early days in the 2014 beginning of the war that just called themselves the Black Hundreds. They directly took the ideology, took the symbolism, everything. That is who they were. There is these Duganist militias. There was um, these registered Cossacks, people who saw themselves, who dressed up in these elaborate uniforms and pretended to be, you know, these old defenders of orthodoxy, nationality, autocracy. And all these little groups are what formed the core of the beginning of the pro-Russian militant groups. And they were all cultivated, most of them anyway, by a certain Russian oligarch named Malafayev. Malafayev, very, very religious, very, very Russian Orthodox, very, very anti-Semitic. It was the big force behind putting all these groups together. So when the war began, they had their foot soldiers ready to go. And this is one thing that kind of bothers me about the focus on some far-right groups in Ukraine that often have pretty nebulous ideology, to be honest, is that because these many of these groups and many of these Russian groups are not anti-Semitic in a way that Westerners immediately recognize, 
they may not wear the swastika, although many of them do, they got less attention. Um, unlike Azov or right sector or whatever, these Russian groups, which are in many cases much larger, much more violent, uh, much more militant, much more connected to the state, much more receiving um, official or um, widespread support. Yeah, just overall, far more threatening movements went completely under the radar because they based themselves on the symbolism and ideologies of Russian imperialism, including proto-fascist Russian imperialism, including extraordinarily anti-Semitic, responsible for the deaths of thousands anti-Semitism. But because it's a little bit different from what people are used to, it just went completely ignored. And just to make it entirely clear, having a distinction between quote-unquote good and bad Jews is still anti-Semitism. That is, in fact, one of the pillars of anti-Semitism, very common in Russia. Every Jew that a Russian may know is a good Jew, but the amorphous kind of concept of Jews is the enemy. Um, where that amorphous concept exists is, of course, um, up to the anti-Semite, but that's kind of how they conceptualize things. When they say good Jews or bad Jews, they're not really referring to in many cases, a specific group of like living physical people, but the concept of the shadowy Jewish cabal that's been set out in all of this um, anti-Semitic ideology that Anthony has been recounting. Those are the bad guys. Do, do those people exist? No, they're imaginings of um, crazed racist uh, conspiracy theorists. But those are the ones that are invoked when later anti-Semitic violence is enacted, or when widespread cultural memes that are incredibly anti-Semitic make it into uh, the foreign ministry of a massive country. In conclusion, the ideas that Lavrov said are extraordinarily common within Russian society. It is a conspiracy theory that is um, widespread. And these very specific anti-Semitic ideologies that got their start in the 19th century run straight through till today. They've evolved a bit. We look at Dugan now as kind of the banner carrier of this kind of ideology that goes straight to Illin, who inspired Hitler, who uh, all connects to the extraordinary anti-Semitic violence of the late imperial period of the 1880s of it it is all um strung together it is all connected it is all a part of the greater definition of russian imperialism as in many ways being anti-semitic just as it is anti-democratic just as it is anti-ukrainian and what really caught my ear now is you may have heard me say earlier that it was it's reactionary in the truest sense of the word in that these outbursts of anti-Semitism come when the state begins to look weak. Well, the Russian state right now is looking weak in the war. When the time comes for them to lose the war, this will be a very major blow. Anti-Semitic attacks have followed whenever Russia uh, was humiliated in the way that it's on track to being humiliated right now. So I'm very concerned about what the future will look like for Jews within Russia even if they are consider themselves Russian, even if they consider themselves loyal to the Russian state, even if they consider themselves a part of the Russian state as soldiers or anything like that, they'll be blamed. What led to the rise of Hitler was this feeling of humiliation that German soldiers felt after losing World War I and trying to blame someone else for their own loss. And they found the Jews. I believe that right now is that right now Russia is very much developing its own stabbed in the back myth. It is trying to find any explanation for why the war did not finish up in the max two weeks that I thought it would. And if when they are driven out of Ukrainian territory, they will be humiliated for for losing against an inferior enemy and will be looking for reasons why that happened. And if history, including Russian history, is any indication I think they'll find the Jews to be the perfect scapegoat. But again, I would like to plug the book Putin's Hybrid War and the Jews by Sam Sokol. It goes into many of these ideas into much more detail, especially as they're unfolding at the time of Euromaidan. And I myself run a 
a little bit of an informational side project called Jewish Ukraine Travel, where I kind of go around the country, find Jewish sites, talk about them. So if you want to learn more about the history of Jewish Ukraine, please go to that site, the Facebook group. Just uh, It's just something I enjoy doing. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Ukraine Without Hype. As always, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at, at HypeUkraine. And of course, you can sign up to be a supporter of the podcast uh, by contributing to our Patreon. Links are in the description. Uh, as always, we will read out the names of our patrons that we have uh, as a thank you for contributing um, to keeping this podcast running. And those patrons are Abir, Amea, Barbara, Big Rob, Brianna Rhoda, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Ostrowski, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Deborah Lee, Devra Gracer, Eric Honnold, George, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob, Ho Jacob Hoam, James Weiss, Jennifer Jarvis, Jessica Eck, Justin Devendorf, Kristen Swanland, Laura DeLeon, Laura Lacari, Levy Grove, Evgenia, Lottie, Melissa, Mike Rones, Mike Lee Whiplash, Noam Hart, Patricia George, Patricia Spurls, Paul Bailey, Rachel Haidu, Rajesh, Randy McNerlin, Robert Bailey, Sanjay, Scott, Steve Bien, Stephen Greenberg, T. Bart, Theo, Vic, and Will Stevens. Thank you very much to all of you. We'll be again switching to a weekly schedule so you can listen to us next week. If there are any breaking updates in the meantime, we may have uh, an update on that. But until then, thank you for listening and Slava Ukraini. Es wird abheugt von unser Trott, wir seinen da. Weil kommen wird noch unser ausgewählte Schaub. Es wird abheugt von unser Trott, wir seinen da.